We now come to our sermon passage, um, and we're continuing on, continuing on in, in the Gospel of John uh, this morning. We're picking up in John chapter 10, uh, and we are looking at the first 18 verses of that chapter, one of the famous sayings of Jesus, He is the Good Shepherd. We'll talk a little bit about the context of what that means um, here, as He said it, and what it means for us today. But I'm actually turn if you don't have your Bible with you, you don't have your phone out, it's printed for you in your bulletin. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, this is God's word, good, beautiful, truth. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger, and in fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used his figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they have, may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is hired man and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay, my, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep, then I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay, my, lay down my life for me to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. This command received from my Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that in it we get a glimpse of who you are and what you're about. And so we get a picture of who we are in you and what we are about. So in these moments as we look at this passage, as we consider what it means to be your sheep, for you to be our good shepherd, move upon our hearts to see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, that we may love him all the more, that we may be change to be like him. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, I heard recently on, well, a couple years ago on a podcast, um, we all know the, the caricature of the CEO, big money CEO, that what, what, what some of the things they like to do, they like to play golf. We have pictures of these successful businessmen off on the golf course. It's what they do. It's the kind of leisure they enjoy. And this podcast episode was talking about this uh, economist at Miami University who thought about this caricature and who realized that the USGA has a database. So the big golf, overarching golf organization has a database online that people join. And if they want to calculate how they're doing, they want to calculate their handicap and compare themselves and compete with other people in golf, what they do is they play golf and they upload their scores. 
they can do that over time and they can figure out how, how do they compare with other people, how, how are they progressing or regressing in, in their skills as a golfer. And so this economist thought, oh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the names of the top 250 uh, publicly traded companies in America, I'm going to take the names of the CEOs, and I'm going to look them up in the database and see if they're there. It's an interesting uh, thing he decided to do there. And so um, when he looked them up, or the top 1,500 CEOs, sorry, when he looked them up, he found out that 363 of those 1,500 CEOs were so obsessed with golf that they regularly put their data into this database. And the average of that group of 363 CEOs, the average group of that group was 15 rounds of golf per year. Now, I'm not a golfer, but I know it's not like putt-putt you can play in 30 minutes if you're not. Golf is like four hours. This is, this is a long time. And so the average of this group of 363 CEOs was 15 rounds of golf per year, which is significant by itself. If it takes four hours to play, that's 60 hours of golf a year. But the top 10% of that 363 uh, CEO group, the top 10%, they were playing upwards of 37 rounds of golf a year. That's 160 hours. Or if we calculate it by work hours, you know, 40 hour work week, that's four full 40 hour work weeks of golf. And of course, that doesn't include going to the driving range and practicing. That doesn't include playing nine holes and you don't input your numbers. That doesn't include time hanging around with the golf course or going to and from the golf course. So those amounts of time are actually underestimates. The highest one we found, and this one blew my mind, the highest amount was a CEO who played 140 rounds of golf in one year. That's four hours per round. That's 560 hours. That's 23 full calendar days of golf. Now, I'm not picking on golf. I'm not a golfer. I'm not picking on CEOs. I'm not that either. Um, but what that economist did is he took these numbers and then he said, well, I wonder how this correlates to how these companies are doing. And so he pulled up that information, how these companies were performing over time. And he seemed to find a correlation that the more golf the CEO played, the worse his company did financially. The more time the CEO spent on the golf course, honing his game, getting his score down, the worse his company did. In our passage, Jesus is talking about leadership. Now, he's not talking about leadership like CEOs playing golf. That's not what's going on here. He's talking about religious leaders. He's talking about pastors. Look at that very first verse. He's talking to whom? The Pharisees. The Pharisees were the pastors of the people of God at this time. And Jesus is talking about how their leadership of God's people and his church had become a weight around people's shoulders. Something that Jesus came as a good shepherd to call them out of and to free them from. Now this isn't a strange concept to us, this idea of religious leaders that abuse their power and authority. I don't even have names written down. I can think off the top of my head dozens. Dozens. Even the past year, Robbie Zacharias died two years ago, came out after the fact. He has abused, he had abused countless women over the span of his ministry. Bill Hybels, who was pastor of a Willow Creek church outside of Chicago, one of the biggest churches in the world for four 
Peter is the leader there of these countless women under his charge. We all know of uh, Jim Baker. We all know of the, those, those names from the 80s, the televangelists. I could keep naming them. It's not a strange concept for us. It happens often. I don't think a week goes by that I don't hear about some situation where the pastor's mistreating his people. And that's what Jesus is dealing with directly here. He's speaking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. He's addressing them in failures of leadership. Now, if you pay attention throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen the ways that the Pharisees' leadership has led God's people into darkness. If you remember, back in chapter 1, John the Baptist shows up on the scene. He says, the king of God's people is coming, and I am sent ahead to announce, to get ready, y'all, heaven's breaking into earth. And what do they do? All they have is questions and veiled accusations. They're frustrated because John wasn't authorized by them, so they come out, you know, come out to him with accusation. In, in John chapter 2, Jesus goes into Jerusalem, and he has to run the money changers out of the temple. They were in the middle of the church having the table set up, making money off the back of worshipers that were traveling in the town. That's what the religious leadership of the Pharisees had done. They had turned worship of God into a commodity for people to make money off the back of the folks. They had created such an environment that in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee himself, wanted to speak to Jesus, he had come into, had come into the middle of the night in secret. When Jesus healed a man in Jerusalem in John chapter 5 who had been struggling with a debilitating disease for 38 years, all they had was accusations because Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. And we saw the same thing when we were speaking about the man who had been born blind in John chapter 9. This is what the religious leadership of the Pharisees had led to. It led to a place of distrust, a place um, of, of, of pain. Their leadership had not led to thriving and flourishing, and led to God's people being trapped. In essence, the tragedy is that the religious leaders had created the barriers for people to come and see God for who He is. So Jesus approaches these Pharisees directly in this passage. He speaks to them directly, and He does it by a parable of sorts. He's narrating what has happened and what will happen with a couple of metaphors. Now, Jesus often speaks in parables or metaphors, or as it says in here, a figure of speech. And he does it as a way to tell the truth, but almost from the side. Um, to quote Emily Dickinson, she actually wrote a uh, poem about this kind of thing. She said, Tell the truth, but tell it slant. The truth must, must dazzle gradually in every man. So when Jesus is approaching with parables and metaphors, he's hitting his audience from the side. He's hitting our imaginations, not just our minds, because our minds can hear facts. And he's hitting heart. He's hitting imagination. So that's what he's doing here. He's using this parable to get at the greater point of what's going on. So let's talk about the metaphor, the story that he uses. He tells a story. He paints a picture for their imagination and ours. And he uses a very common world at the time of sheep herding. Common for them. It's images they would recognize. And here's what Jesus says. That the world is like a sheepfold. That the world that these people inhabit is like a sheepfold. It's a pen. And a sheepfold was a pen where another sheep were kept and closed for safety. So if you were in a city, there would be a sheepfold outside of town. It's kind of like a parking lot for your sheep. 
And so it wouldn't just be your sheep, it would be a bunch of sheep that were in the sheepfold in this enclosed area. And you would hand over your sheep to go in and do your business, and somebody would watch over them, in a sense. And then when you came back out, if you were a shepherd, you would call out to your sheep, and your sheep over time would learn your voice. And so the sheep uh, would be in the sheepfold, and the shepherd would show up and, and call out to his sheep, and they would say, there's my shepherd. They would go to the gate to follow him out. That's the idea here. The sheepfold uh, is a place where no sheep are. And so people have showed up in Jesus' story, and they've acted like leaders. In this case, it's the Pharisees. But what does Jesus call them? Thieves and robbers. Thieves and robbers. They've shown up as religious leaders, but they've acted with bad intentions, and they take what they want. When they were robbers, it's not just a description of someone who breaks in and steals. It's a word that can also be translated as bandit. Now, in the time of Jesus, the political situation in Israel was a very tense one. And it didn't slack off. Jesus was ministering at this time around 30 AD. Forty years after the time of Jesus, the city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Romans. There was this political situation of revolution that was almost constantly ongoing in the first century AD. It was a very tense one. There had been a number of uprisings that had occurred where a leader would show up and he'd gather an army around him and they would declare, we're here to drive Rome out. And they would go into the city, they'd be squashed under the power of Rome. Happened over and over again. And some of the folks in the face of this had become almost uh, like a gang. Like in, in our modern thinking, we feel like a gang. These outlaws that hung out on the ways and they were uh, big Wild West bad guys. They would lie and wait for travelers. Gangs that would go and break into villages at night to take what they wanted. This is the word that Jesus is using, bandits, who are responding. Uh, in a sense, they were political revolutionaries. And the reason I think Jesus uses this is because the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they despise these people. They despise them. The Pharisees were, in a sense, the conservative folks that kept the peace. They believed in supporting the institutions. They held society together. They were afraid of revolutionary voices. They were afraid of any talk that wasn't really in support of pacifying Rome, the political power. But what Jesus says here is that in their treatment of God's people, they are no more than thieves. They are no more than the bandits that they despise. That their defending of the traditional values of their day wasn't any more than stealing and destroying God's people. As he says in verse 10, they have become thieves that come only to steal and kill and destroy. Or as he says in verse 12 and 13, he modifies the image a little bit and calls them hired hands. Hired hands. People who only care for the sheep and as much as it feels the prophet. Now, Jesus continues on. Look at verse 12. The hired man is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired man and cares nothing for the sheep. Now, the image here that Jesus, he talks about the wolf coming. Jesus is using that image as Rome. The political power of Rome. The religious leaders, the Pharisees here, were terrified of Rome. 
They were terrified. We actually see this explicitly in the next chapter. If you go to John chapter 11, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are at wit's end about Jesus. They can't get rid of him. They can't arrest him. They can't trap him in a thing for him to lose notoriety. And so they say this, and you can see it in John 11, uh, 47 to 48. Here's this man performing many signs. Listen, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Now, we talked last week, if you remember, about the fear that blind. The blind man had been healed. He had been blind since birth. And he miraculously gains sight through Jesus. And he goes back to his community to celebrate with them, but they are blinded by their own fear. His parents are blinded by their fear of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. His community is blinded by their fear of the religious leaders. And what happened to that man? He was cast out from his community altogether. He was thrown out of the synagogue, as it says. The people were blinded by their fear of the religious leaders. The fear Jesus talking about them being false shepherds. We find out they were terrified as well. That the Pharisees had become self-protective. And they had become thieves and robbers of God's people because of their fear of Rome and its political power. And fear joined to religion is a terrifying and powerful So many examples. Now I said a few weeks ago that religion apart from a vision of God and his love is the most dangerous and deadly thing in the world. And that's true. Because religion and the trappings of religion detach from the heart of God becomes a weapon. It becomes a justification for mistreating other people, for conspiring against them, for using other people, for reaching for power. And if we miss the heart of God and keep all the religious trappings, which is what the Pharisees had done, they kept the forms of religion but missed God's heart entirely. All the religious trappings just keep you trapped. That's all that religion detached from the vision of God's love and Jesus Christ can do. That's all it can do. And in this passage, Jesus is talking about religion in the hands of fearful men. And it had only become a weapon that tore God's Well, thankfully, this metaphor isn't just Jesus. It's something Jesus uses to shine a light on the failures of the Pharisees. They're taking advantage of people. Because Jesus, in this passage, doesn't just talk about thieves and robbers. He talks about himself. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. To see what he says about himself. So let's return to the image. Again, the people are in the sheepfold. And the picture that Jesus has shown is they're trapped in this sheepfold. And thieves and robbers keep coming in to take advantage of them. See, they're in the sheepfold, seemingly vulnerable in every, every way, and they will escape, trapped in the hands of the thieves and robbers and hired hands that don't truly care for them. What does God do in the face of this? What does God do in the face of this reality? The true shepherd arrives and causes people. The true shepherd arrives. Look at verse 3. He calls his own sheep by name, wins the battle. Jesus then pictures it this way. 
He has called his people from within the trap of the sheepfold where they're exposed. He calls to us and leads us out. And we cling to him. We cling to him. To hear the voice of Jesus calling us means we begin a process of tuning out other voices that lead us astray. As Jesus says in verse 5, they will never follow the stranger. They will never follow the stranger. Let me pause. What it means for us to be called by Jesus is the beginning of a process where we begin to hear and discern his voice and hear him calling our name. And also a process where we begin to stop answering to other names. Whether those be the accusations of Satan, whether those be the voices of people who want to name us something else, whether that be the internal voice that we've, that we've come accustomed to hearing, coming to Jesus in part means not just learning the truth, but beginning to unlearn the lies. And not just unlearn the lies, but to begin to see the lies lose their power. Here's what I mean. Oh, we live in a world where the measurement of a person can be how much money they have in their bank account, how much money they have saved up for retirement. It can be what kind of car they drive. It can be what neighborhood they live in. It can be how many friends they have, how respectable they are, how clean their past is. I can keep going. We live in a world that measures people by that. And so here's the problem with that. For me, at least, I don't have a lot of money. I like my name to look pretty good, but there's some nicer ones, I suppose. I have a lot of friends, but I've burned bridges before. There's a lot of stuff that I've said, done, and thought that is very wrong. And the world outside, even my own heart, would call me to answer to that. For that to be my name, in a sense. But in Jesus Christ, I made a son of God. That's what it means to hear the voice of Jesus, is to recognize that as the truth. That name, and to answer to that name. In Jesus, I'm justified in God's sight. He has declared me righteous in His sight, not because of anything I've done, but because I've clung to Him in faith. That is the truth. That is mine when Jesus calls me by name. So I stop trying to measure myself by the things I've done right or the things I've done wrong. I'm a son of God, justified in God's sight, created for dignity and honor, and destined to be made whole. That's me, that's my story. That's yours as well. That's what it means to hear the voice of Jesus in the midst of the craziness of the sheepfold of this world. The voices and the lies that live in our heart and are pounded in our ears by media or whatever we take in every day. To hear the voice of Jesus is to hear the clarity that grace break through. Then in verse 7, look at that. Jesus isn't just a shepherd that leads. He's the gate that we go through. This is him introducing a second metaphor, slightly modifying it a little bit. The point he's making here is that lest we think Jesus is just a, sh a shepherd standing outside, calling to us, 
He says, no, he's not just leading us, but he's with us. He's not just the one calling to us, so a motivation to chase after him. He's the gate, he's the way to freedom. We never move on from him as a fountain of goodness. We never move on to something else to find our spiritual nourishment. He's not distant and telling us to jump through these hoops to get to him, calling our voice and saying, hey, hey, over here, come to me. He becomes also the gate, our way out of this world of darkness where we're called to live by these lesser names and hear the voices of these lies in our ears. He's the shepherd, and he's the Now, the false shepherds may flee in the face of wrong, as we've talked about, but Jesus will not. He is the good shepherd, as he says in verse 10, that will lay his life down for the sheep. And that's what Jesus does. If we keep reading in the Gospel of John, Jesus is executed by the Roman government. The religious leaders finally succeed in colluding together, and they hand him under the wrong. And they say, this guy's causing political uh, problems. This guy's causing issues. Can you take care of it? And that's what happens. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't flee in the face of that. In his power, he does not flee. He lays his life down. As he says in verse 10, in comparing himself with the false shepherds, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. What has Jesus done? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Guys, if you want a mission statement, Jesus is mission statement. Jesus is purpose for you and your life. Listen to this. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What makes Jesus' heart beat? What makes him get up in the morning when he was on this earth and go? What gave him rhythm as he marched toward Jerusalem, knowing what that meant? That you may have life and have it to the full. That I may have life. That's Jesus' mission statement. That's what makes him tick. His love for you. His love for me. That you and me might have life and have it to the full. Now I've heard that idea of abundant life, having life and having it to the full. I've heard people describe it in the sense that Jesus wants to make you have a lot of money. Or, you know, if you have a lot of faith, you're going to drive a Bugatti, or you're going to, whatever. If you just believe hard enough, that's, that's God's plan for you. But when we hear Jesus talking about having an abundant life, a full life, that's not what he means. It's not an invitation for us to think of Jesus like a genie. We rub the lamp and we get our three wishes and they come true. Because the promise of Jesus in giving us a full life is not Him promising us things. It's Him promising Himself. John talks about Jesus as life in Himself. That He is the life and life of all mankind. And it invites us to call Him our reward, our inheritance. And what happens Jesus is our shepherd, and Jesus has the gate, reorients us to stop drinking from fountains that will either run out or poison us, rather than come to him, and to find ourselves swept up in the life of God. And here's the good news about that. If Jesus 
He has life in himself as our source of life, the source of spiritual nourishment that we come back to. The good news is he never runs out because he is an eternal God. I can have success in a career or I can have money in a bank account, but it's finite. It goes away. My career could be very successful for five years and the job disappeared. I could be very successful in this way or that and get injured and can't do the job anymore. In this world, we want to latch on to these pieces of identity, these pieces of things to give us worth and value as we talked about as I call them the lies that are fed into our ears. They can go away tomorrow, but the good news in Jesus, with Him as our good shepherd, with Him as our gate, we come to Him, and He gives us an abundant life that cannot run out. He gives us a source of nourishment and worthiness that can hold and fill all of who we are, that will not run out. Now that sounds a little crazy, the idea of us being swept up into the life of God. That's the core of what it means for us to find Jesus as our good shepherd. That God comes to us in Jesus, and God joins himself to us so that he's no longer simply God. We can think of God as this distant, transcendent being that's far off. But in Jesus becomes God with us, and God for us. And never again is God apart from us. He is good shepherd and we are his sheep. We are his people. So the invitation this morning, friends, is not just to think of Jesus as a good shepherd. He is your good shepherd. Not just to think of Jesus as calling some, uh, you know, hypothetical sheep, but calling you by name. He's not just laying down his life as he talks about and taking it up again for someone hypothetically. He lays his life down for you. He takes it up again for you. Why? So that you may have life and have it to the full. God's destiny for you is that you be made whole. Now the pieces and pictures of what that looks like, I can't tell you. And the fullness of it we will only know in, in, in the new heavens and new earth, and Jesus making all things new. But if you're wondering what God's purpose is for your life, that's a question a lot of people ask. His purpose for your life is for you to have life, to have it to the full, to have a source of worthiness and love that cannot run dry, for you to see yourself as so joined to Him as you can never be torn apart again. You are His. In closing, because we can keep going on this idea of Jesus as his shepherd all day. But I want to point this out. In light of, we talk about church membership a little bit. Jesus coming as good shepherd isn't just something that he does for us individually. He's not just my good shepherd, he's our good shepherd. He doesn't just come to bring us individually an abundant life that can be defined each individual person defining it differently. This life is received together. And that's what he means in verse 16. He tells them then this. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. 
They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. What he was telling them there in 30 AD, and what John was writing in probably 80, 90 AD, decades later, was that the mission that Jesus had, that he was completing through his apostles, was the good shepherd continuing to call, his voice continuing to echo and resound, to call all of his sheep to this one flock. And friends, we sit here beginning in the 21st century because that voice has continued to resound. And the good shepherd has continued to call. And we are brought home, not just to Jesus individually, not just Jesus and me, but we are brought together. We are joined together. And we're in this together. We aren't made to strive for this world alone. It's not just me and Jesus. We're made to walk together in the sheep, to follow our good shepherd's voice together. To be with one another so that when I can't hear the good shepherd's voice, when the lies are loud in my ear, and I can't hear anything else, you walk alongside me. When I can't find the rhythm to keep going, I can watch your feet. When I can't find the strength of faith to stand, I lean on you and borrow yours and you on me. That's the way it's meant to be. Because the truth is, friends, there are pieces of who Jesus is. There are pieces of who he is as a good shepherd that I will never know except through you. There are pieces of his grace that I will only know through seeing his grace come to you. And vice versa. So this morning, in this world full of religious leaders and political leaders and all kinds of leaders that seem only to be out for, for themselves, this world full of thieves and robbers, let's open the ears of our hearts and let's hear the call of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And let's lean upon His goodness and walk through Him as our gate. Stop trying to find other ways. And let's find the firm conviction that He is one. He is one. That God will not be stopped in bringing to us all the grace that we need to bring us home and to make us whole.